0: Hey folks, this is Tom Salemi. Welcome back to the Device Talks, a weekly podcast. We have an orthopedics review for you today. Very cool interviews. First, I talked to Russell Powers of Depew. We'll talk shoulder. We'll talk robotics. We'll talk history of orthopedics. Uh, He has a great overview of the industry. Uh, He's worked in the spine area. He's now working again at Depew Synthes. He oversees shoulder reconstruction, sports medicine, and spine. So Lots of interesting information to talk about with Russell. Later on, I uh, conducted sort of a first-time interview for me, a first type of interview for me. I talked with Dr. Justin Barad. He is the founder and CEO of Oso VR. And we actually conducted this interview In the world of virtual reality, I was sent a a pair of Oculus headsets from Oso, and Justin and I talked in the Oso VROR. It was very, very cool. I think you'll hear from the interview that it very much felt as if you were, I was talking with someone on stage somewhere. Uh, in person, face to face, I kind of could read the, the the body cues, if not the facial cues. You really can't see their face, but uh, I really enjoyed the conversation. It went on for about forty five minutes, but I cut it down a bit and we extracted the part in which uh justin was uh demonstrating a procedure and turned that into a video we'll have that video up on social media Uh, also vr is working on that right now but uh very cool time talking with justin barad very very interesting time talking with russell powers so uh i know you'll enjoy this episode of the device talks weekly podcast All right, you ready for this ready My podcast partner, Chris Newmarker, executive editor of life sciences. Chris Newmarker, how are you, sir? Doing well, sir. Doing well. How are you doing, Tom? Doing great. And we're welcoming back Danielle Kerr. She's back for a second time. Woo! Senior Welcome editor back, at Mass Device. Danielle, how are you?
1: Yeah, I'm good. Thanks for having me again.
0: So are you uh you've been you've been chain smoking and, and coffee drinking and watching the <laughs> Theranos trial, right? You just can't miss a minute.
1: Oh yeah, sure, sure. <laughs>
0: <laughs> we'll we'll get a wrap up from you a little later in the New Markers Newsmakers, which we'll start in a moment. That'll be awesome. But Chris, did you know that uh that a lot of people listen to this podcast while they're jogging and exercising? How's that make yeah, you feel?
2: That's awesome.
0: Yeah. yeah. That contributing to the, the the good health.
2: Keep people moving, keeping them informed about their industry, you know, while they're uh getting good workout and that's awesome.
0: Exactly. And and Paul Grant of MedTech Innovator says he listens to us at one and a half times speed. So I was thinking, if you at some point during the New Markets Newsmaker could talk really fast, it might trick him into running even faster. Maybe we could help him get a personal best. Do you think you could do that? Maybe.
2: Hey, Paul, how you doing? I think we're gonna. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Perfect. Yes. All right. So just just weave that in there from time to time. <laughs> no, 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 no. Just tro- totally screw up his his gait. <laughs> All right, we'll keep it a single speed. We don't want to freak out. He lives
2: in California. He's got to watch out for traffic. Probably. He's jogging around. like
0: He's shaking his head right I've, now, I'm sure. I've
2: got, I've got friendly Minnesota drivers where I live. That's like, right.
0: That's right. They just stop and let you pass even if you're you're not using the crosswalk. Although you would never not use a crosswalk. You're in Minnesota. Uh,
2: they're everywhere. we got zebra walks, you know, like it's uh, in, z- our, in our town.
0: Zebra walk. Oh, okay.
2: You know, those little special line walks where you just, like, trust that the drivers will
0: stop for you, you know, when you cross. I'm from Massachusetts. We don't trust anybody. <laughs> you don't do that. <laughs>
3: I always tell my I sons, mean,
0: look them in the eyes. Make sure you see their eyes.
2: Yeah. Oh yeah, even here. I mean, I I uh, I always have a thought in my head that that's uh, that's one way I'm going to get injured someday is just somebody's going to be on a phone or whatever driving around. <laughs> I did get. Gonna, oh,
1: it doesn't hurt that it, bad. What's, oh, that's
2: right. Did you? Well, oh, that's right. Well, we have a we resident have an to, you expert know, of getting <laughs> hit, by yeah, hit by a car. Yeah, I'm like <laughs> glad you're okay. But yes, uh, you, now you were. What were you doing when you got hit by the car?
1: I was riding my bike. I was minding my own business. An electric
2: bicycle. Yes. I was, yes.
1: I was going to the lake. I was. Yeah. I was having fun. I was only a mile from my house, and then she hit me, and then yeah. asked if she wanted me if if I wanted her to drive me home. And I was like, I'm not getting in a car <laughs> with you.
0: <Yeah. laughs> the person who just hit you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You you oh and the bike goodness. were okay though.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Oh, good. We're all right. <laughs>
0: I got hit by a right. cab in Boston walking to work one day when I was at the Boston Business Journal, and I it was I was Aww. in a daze as if I I would have been looking at a smartphone, but this was 1998, so there was no smartphone to be had. I was just a complete idiot and just kind of walked out the path of a cab, but I was fine. Oh my god, it, it just 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 a flesh wound. We were okay.
2: That's good. We all we all
1: survived. All right, this has been a
0: great, really really <laughs> revealing really conversation. Sure. But
2: I do want to ask Danielle, are you still driving the electric bike?
1: I am. Uh, one of my favorite Fridays. Traditions is to go out and uh, go get breakfast at one of my favorite donut local donut shops, and then ride my bike to the beach and kind of go through our feeds for the day.
2: (laughs) That's great, Uh, and that's that's in Cleveland, where you live. And uh, and uh, do you still are you still doing the black helmet with the black bike?
1: (laughs) Um,
2: got that whole thing going on. It's
1: a silver bike now, but I have like a full face helmet because my, my mom told me to basically, she's like, if you're going to be going over 20 miles per hour, I'm going to need you to wear more than a normal bike helmet.
2: Full body armor. That's, that's awesome. I like the routine too. Donuts and beef. That's a a great way to start the
1: day. Yeah.
0: (laughs) All right. Well, let us start this day or this podcast day or this next part of the podcast.
2: With the new markers, newsmakers.
0: You've picked our top five stories from our uh, our life sciences feeds, mass device, MBO, etc. Fresh, what is fresh news? Fresh news. Number five. We have some big news yeah, actually. A lot of a lot of a lot of. I mean, a lot of, a lot of Great advances in medtech. Yeah, it
2: said something that our number five thing on the list. I mean, some weeks this would definitely be just like the number one news. Uh, like, but we've got so much stuff getting traffic this week. But uh, Abbott, they got FDA approval of their uh, Portico with a FlexNav Taver. So this is Abbott entering the U.S. Taver market. It's been dominated by uh, Edwards Life Sciences and Medtronic, and now we're going to have uh, you know Abbott in the space. Uh, we actually had. Uh, you know, Boston Scientific was competing in the space too, and they, uh, you, know, th- you know, threw in the towel on their Lotus program late 2020. It's going to mm-hmm. be a few more e- years before we, you know, see their next gen thing come out. So for now, it's, uh, it's turning into a three way race: in the United States with uh, with Taber, which is a very hot hot space. Um, you know, really, uh, really cool technology. Um, I know if. Uh, Gosh, you know, you know, Lord forbid I ever need to have a valve replaced. Um, getting getting something delivered through a, a catheter versus having versus having my chest cracked open sounds like a, sounds like a good plan.
0: Yeah, well, we, well, we had the episode a couple of weeks ago, and you weren't available for that one, but we talked with Larry Wood from Edwards and Stan Rowe, who of course, was the CEO of, of PVT, and Larry Wood said that they can actually do this procedure now under conscious sedation. So, like, you don't even have to be under anesthesia anymore. Wow! So that's that's unbelievable. Getting a heart valve replaced Yeah, right. That's, that's mind blowing. That's, yeah, wow. But yeah, we'll have to revisit this topic and uh, yes. we can talk to Abbott. And I think you actually have a conversation coming up uh, sometime in the future. We'll be talking with Abbott and maybe we'll get Medtronic yeah. as well and put together another Taver episode. That was uh, that was a really fascinating way to learn about the space. Good technology. Cool. All right. That should have been number one. You're right. In a normal week, but this is yeah. super med tech week. So what is uh, what's number four?
2: Well, you know, number four. Um, this is uh, this is some bad news. It's um, you know, um, Medtronic has a uh, another Class One level recall uh, involving its uh, Pipeline Flex uh, embolization oh, device. No. Um, yeah, this one involves uh, Pipeline Flex uh, with uh, Shield technology, and uh, these are like thousands of devices um and uh you know FDA is saying 59 reported malfunctions 10 serious injuries and 2 deaths yikes so uh yeah so they're uh, so they're working on that one well,
0: they had the, they of course had had their hardware issue a couple of months ago they had a stop sale on that and uh, I know we spoke with Jeff Martha and Metronic talks. are really putting an emphasis on on quality and really aligning their uh, compensation packages to uh, reward not yeah. having problems like this one. So uh, it seems like they're still working through yeah, the system. Yeah,
2: exactly. So yeah,
0: we'll uh, we'll keep on following what's uh, what's going on with this recall. Hey, Everyone, before we get into this conversation with Russell Powers of Depew Synthes, I want to remind you that our Device Talks Tuesday series resumes. On Tuesday at 4 p.m., that's September 28th, our friends at Avania will be leading a very interesting and essential conversation about reimbursement. Title is "How Reimbursement and Medical Writing Can Get Your Device to Market." I will interview two leaders, two experts in the space. Jennifer Verala, she's a senior manager of reimbursement at Avania. And Feta De Colona, she is the manager of medical writing at Avania. So uh, we've got a a really uh, informative conversation laid out. So if you are a startup looking to find payment for your device, looking to get your device on the market, you're going to want to understand reimbursement. So join us on Tuesday at 4 p.m. Go to devicetalks.com for more information or to register, or you can scan the QR code which is on the front of this podcast logo. Now let's hear from Russell Powers, Worldwide President, Shoulder Reconstruction, Sports Medicine, and Spine at Depew Synthes. Well, Russell Powers, welcome to the podcast.
4: Hey, Tom. Thanks for having me on your show today.
0: Great to have you. Let's get into your your background a bit. Uh, I always enjoy understanding how folks find their way into the medtech industry. The first first job I'm seeing for you in medtech was uh, at Smith and Nephew. Was that the first? And how did you find your way there?
4: (laughs) Yeah. So, um, yeah, I started in the orthopedic industry in the uh, early 90s. And so, heck, that's going on 30 years now. And And you're right. I started right out of college, actually, with a company at that name was actually Richards Medical, became Smith & Nephew Richards. And now we know Richards as Smith & Nephew Orthopedics. And I don't know, Tom, how much do you know about the orthopedic industry? Are you pretty familiar with the industry? Uh, yeah, I've been covering for
0: for a little bit. I've never sold or implanted a device, but uh, I certainly have talked to people who have uh, done that and sold and sold those.
4: Yeah, so you know, our, our industry is a very large industry in terms of dollars. It's about fifty billion dollars in size, and it's growing uh, around four percent. But then when you think about the community, uh, it's actually pretty small, and mm-hmm. it has, a, it, has got, it has a very interesting background. And um, so uh, Dupuy which is now the orthopedic division of Johnson & Johnson, was, was founded, um, I believe the year was around 1890, 1895 by uh, Rivard Depew. Um, he was a pharmaceutical salesman, and he founded the first orthopedic company in a, in a small town in Indiana, Warsaw, Indiana. And he um, and then uh, in the early 1900s, around 1920, I believe it's like 1927, uh, one of his sales reps, uh, Justin Zimmer, uh, founded the second orthopedic company, uh, which we know now as Zimmer, which is now Zimmer Biomet. Around that same time in uh, 1930, another W sales rep founded a company in Memphis, Tennessee, uh, which was, uh, his name was J. Don Don Richards, and uh, that's Richards Medical, which is, again, now Smith the Nephew, and by uh, dumb luck, uh, I uh, was uh, walking uh, past the the business office at the University of Memphis in 1989 and bought a... uh, I pulled a phone number off the court board outside the business office about an internship at a medical device company known as Richards. And here I am 30 years later working for Pew Synthes, the largest orthopedic company in the world.
0: That's all right. Yeah, I should have scrolled down a little more in your profile and I would have seen the University of Memphis and that I would have uh, certainly ticked, uh, indicated where, where it all started from. So that's great. So uh, what is it that you enjoy about uh, orthopedics? Because as you said, you spent uh, your, your time, most of your time, if not all your time in orthopedics. And or spine, if you want to. Some people like to uh, combine the two. Some people don't.
4: Yeah, so yeah, orthopedic and spine. It's I, I've spent um, a very large part of my career actually in spine, and um, I um, I tell you, it's really about the personal relationships, um, both with our surgeon customers, but also with the industry. If um, you know, if you look back across my career, so I spent seven years at Smith and Nephew, uh, primarily in, in global marketing, and. In 1997, um, Pat Miles, who was uh, a colleague of mine at Smith and Nephew, who, uh, he's now the CEO of, of AlphaTech, uh, said, Hey, you should come check out the spine company. Um, uh, also in Memphis, um, sophomore Danic, which is now uh, Medtronic, uh, spine, which is the largest spine company in the world. And, um, I literally just went across the street, uh, <laughs> to, uh, to Medtronic and, uh, spent 13 years with Medtronic and, uh marketing U.S. sales, uh, spent some time with our international division, and that's really where I cut my teeth as an executive, and it's also where I met Aldo Dente, our company group chairman here at Depew Synthes, and um, and so uh, if I, you know, fast forward a bit into my career, so um, Pat had left um Medtronic and moved out to San Diego to start a, a spine company with Alex a mm-hmm. company by, by the name of NuVasive. I don't know if you've sure. you known NuVasive. Oh. So I spent uh, six years working with uh, Keith and Pat and Alex out in San Diego, was an officer of the company and had the opportunity to run the spine di- division, set up the international division. And um, and I'm, I'm coming to the point of the story here. And so In 2015, when Alex stepped down as CEO, most of the leadership team left within a year and I made the decision to leave at the end of 2015 to uh, get into the startup world and um, join a small French startup. And the CEO at that time was Vincent Gardez, another colleague from the Medtronic days. And uh, we successfully sold that um, that company Stryker in 2018. And that's when I got the call from Aldo uh, to um, see if I had an interest in joining uh, Johnson & Johnson. And, you know, the common thread there is... is 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 friendships, relationships, and, and colleagues. And my entire career has been built upon relationships. So I think that's what I most enjoy about orthopedics. And in fact, uh, you know, we will be in San Diego next week, we'll spend as much time. Um, uh, almost like a high school reunion, you know, seeing old friends and colleagues, as well as you know your surgeon customers. So it's just a lot of fun, and it's it's a family family industry, and uh, I, I just I really enjoy it. And uh, I couldn't couldn't think of another place I'd rather be and wake up and go to work every day other than Orthopedics and Spine.
0: That's terrific. Uh, before we get into uh, what you're, you're doing currently, uh, compare and contrast, if you would, your experiences at uh, startups like Novasive and Vexum and the larger companies in terms of their their ability to innovate. Of course, Nevesa was a fast mover. They adopted the cheetah as sort of their uh, spirit animal, I guess, or whatever you want to call it. Uh, how how, uh, how did you enjoy the, the two experiences? How different were they? And uh, maybe what are the strengths of one and, and the other? Yeah.
4: So, um, yeah, I've been so lucky to have, you know, have had the opportunity to work with large companies like Medtronic and Johnson & Johnson and, mid-sized companies like NuVasive and Smith and & Nephew and most recently uh, with, with startups. And I think what, you know, what I have found and, you know, and I, I share this with the teams at, at Johnson & Johnson and DePew Synthes all the time is that, you know, you cannot hide behind strategy. Mm-hmm. And and I think that's very easy to do at big companies. Um, you you can have an, inspi- an inspiring vision You can that everyone's aligned to. You can have a strategy that people believe in, and you can have a plan that the company has invested in. And these are all so important. But but if if you do not execute, then the vision, the strategy, and the plan—they're really for naught. And you 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 have to have a solid strategy, but you must absolutely be able to execute on that strategy. And I think oftentimes big companies are great at the McKinsey style PowerPoints, but sometimes they, they lack the execution piece of that. And so I think that's, you know, from the big company experience. And, but I think secondly, what, what I really learned at that sort of that midsize in the, in the startup world is regardless of the segment, whether it's hip, knee, spine, sports, uh, trauma, regardless of the size of the company, the uh, you know three you know and, and I was taught this by one of my um, mentors that game-changing innovation, outstanding customer customer support, and the best sales force um, and the best people those are the three requirements of success um, to any parts of orthopedics and. You know, our business is still in the operating room. It is not in the boardroom. It's the operating room, and, and you have to spend time in the mm-hmm. field with the sales force and with your surgeon customers. You cannot run a business from a boardroom. So, uh, I think those would be you know lessons learned uh, across uh, across my experiences. And and then the last thing would be you got to be you know authentic and true to yourself. You know, the most important thing is you know really. Is a company's culture and ensuring that your core values align with um, the values and the core values of, of the company that you're working for.
0: Sure. Uh, just before again, I'm sorry, you, you've raised an interesting point. I want to follow up on the, the access to the surgery, uh, the ORs. We uh, saw during the, the pandemic, the rise of, of companies like Avail and Proximy and Explorer, who are all trying to create digital connections for sales reps to surgeons. Uh, orthopedics is different. It seems as if the sales reps needs to, need to be in there. But did, did DePue and JJ, did you, did you handle that relationship any differently? Are you, are you putting fewer sales reps in the OR? Is it consistent as it was before? How yeah. has that changed? If it has changed at all?
4: Yeah, I don't think it has changed at all. We, we, okay. took a close, we took a close look at a lot of these um, remote virtual opportunities to be in the operating room. And uh, but at the end of the end of the day, I'm a firm believer that we have to be in the OR. And so we no. we'll, we'll well, there be a hybrid approach going forward? Yeah, I think so, maybe, um, especially when it comes to training. Uh, but in terms of, of uh, the patient on the table and being a part of that uh, surgical support team and that surgical uh, team, it's, uh, you cannot replace that in, in a virtual environment. All right,
0: let's get into your work at Depew. You're the worldwide president of spine and sports medicine and shoulder reconstruction. Tell us where those businesses fit into the larger orthopedics business at, at J&J.
4: Yeah, thanks, uh, Tom. Uh, so, if, if so let's start with sports and shoulders. So, um, uh, when you look at our sports and shoulders business, it's it's actually a pretty significant and strategically important business to Depew Um When you when you combine the two sports medicine and shoulder reconstruction, it's actually the the second largest market in orthopedics. Uh, but it's um, the fastest growing market in orthopedics. And so from a strategic standpoint, just the opportunity that it presents us is of of great significance. Um, And we also feel that this platform serves as the gateway to the ambulatory surgery center. Um, As we see more and more orthopedic procedures shifting from that inpatient center Setting to the outpatient setting. This is where these sports procedures are, are performed every day. So that's where our, our sales force, uh, they wake up and they go to an ambulatory surgery center. And, and then from a foundational standpoint, our capital equipment portfolio with our arthroscopic equipment systems really uh, serve as a foundation to what we believe will be uh, the OR of the future, the ability to connect data digitally digitally from an OR perspective so so our sports and shoulders business is extremely important to the Pew and um, and we've taken the opportunity to put our shoulder reconstruction business with sports um, based upon uh, how our customer approach things Um, so you know when when you think about a a rotator cuff injury our um, shoulder surgeons and sports surgeons um, really look at pathology and uh, they look for for example how, how would you treat a rotator cuff tear? And mm-hmm. that, that injury can be treated uh, with soft tissue repair, with like sutures and anchors. Or if it's irreparable, it may be treated with a, a reverse shoulder arthroplasty procedure. And so that's the way we look at the business. That's how we approach the market. So we've decided to put our shoulder business with our sports met, uh, business, and we've created a, a, a business unit or a platform uh, that we refer to as sports and shoulders. And I, I came on board in the early 2019 to lead that segment of our business.
0: As I mentioned at the top, uh, the shoulder area is, is, you mentioned it's one of the faster growing spaces. I kind of called it the final frontier of, of orthopedics. What is so special about the shoulder and why is it growing so quickly? Is this uh, due to the rise of new technologies or just new, new surgical approaches?
4: Yeah, you know, the, the shoulder um, recon market is, um, it, it's actually been around for quite some time. Um, if you look back to the the origins uh, of shoulder prothesis, it uh, really dates back um, more than 100 years. But it, it really wasn't until the 1950s through the 70s with the development of the anatomic shoulder by near. Mm-hmm. And then um, in the uh, the mid 80s with the uh, Vermont reverse shoulder, did the market as we know it today really, really form. And so it, it is a, a relatively young market compared to other Uh, areas of orthopedics. And and the size of the market from a a patient standpoint uh, is relatively small compared to to hips and knees, but um, it's about $1.5 billion in size, but it's growing uh, at high uh, single digits. And um, there's actually a lot of markets within the market. You have your anatomic shoulder, you have the reverse shoulder, you have fracture, and you have revisions. And I would say the, the real growth drivers there, Tom, are in the reverse market and uh, also what we refer to as the short stem and the uh, stemless market. So hmm. it is, it is a young market. Uh, it's a fast growing market and, um, uh, technology is really, uh, I think, advancing and uh, a growth driver within the market and, and driving the market uh, to these uh, these growth rates.
0: So, tell us a bit about the uh, the enhanced shoulder system. This is a new uh, system that uh, that you you released recently, that you announced recently, and kind of got our got this conversation going.
4: Yeah, so we, um, we just uh, announced the, uh, the release of our uh, newest shoulder system, the Enhanced Shoulder System. And we'll actually be uh, officially launching the system uh, next week at the WOS uh, meeting. And, and so this, um, this new system is, is really important, not only to our business, but it's, it's important to the patients that we, we treat as well. And but uh, if you step back just a bit and think about the importance to our business, so 10 years ago, uh, DePew Synthes had a number one market share position in shoulder reconstruction. Um, but due to a few strategic miscues, uh, we, we took our eye off the ball, and we've actually slipped now to a number three market share position. And I, I will, I will mm. tell you, we're absolutely committed to returning uh, to number one, and When I first came on board about two and a half years ago and took over the shoulder business, we established a three-step process uh, to return to number one. And the first step was that we had to complete our our current portfolio. The second step was that we knew we needed to compete in a more significant way uh, with a next generation shoulder system. And the third part of the plan was really leaping the competition with what we refer to as a digitally enabled shoulder. And so we, we actually completed the first phase uh, with the launch of five new products over the, the last 12 months. And we're now entering the second phase of the plan. And that's with the introduction of our next generation shoulder system. Um, enhance and so so from a business standpoint the enhance is extremely important to our business because it's uh it's the second phase of our plan and uh, we're super excited about releasing it um, next week at the s meeting from from a patient standpoint when you think about the the importance and from a surgeon standpoint um I refer to Enhance as a next generation system. And what I mean by that is that it really offers a new class uh, of convertibility. And what it does, Tommy, it allows surgeons for the first time the ability to really seamlessly transition between a stemless or short stem or a standard stem. Uh, implant choice during a, a single surgical procedure and and so you have multiple options in terms of choices on implants but more importantly the system uses a, a streamlined instrument set and technique that really allows for greater or efficiency and uh, we've we've coined the term one step prep so we use a one step prep stemless surgical approach for all enhanced products which basically means the surgeon will go in and prepare the anatomy and he can make the implant choice uh, during the operation Uh, he doesn't have to uh, plan ahead of time for which implant he's going to use and this really allows for a reduced number of instruments and steps to uh, really any other system on the market today
0: Oh, interesting! No, thanks for that description of that. Uh, how does moving uh, reclaiming number one? Uh, how does that happen? Are you looking to? Is this a matter of growing the business of of getting new customers? Obviously, is going to be an element of this getting new customers. But is it primarily building the shoulder of business, or are are you looking at uh, at converting uh, business as well? Where, how is it the the comeback strategy sort of weighted?
4: Yeah, I think it's. Um, I think it's both if you look at when you look at the market uh, uh, the 1.5 billion uh, a billion of that's in the U.S. so this is really a U.S. game even though this is a you know this is a global business we have to win in the U.S. uh to to get back to number one and uh number one is um now Striker, uh, with the acquisition of Wright, with uh, Zimmer Biomet right on their heels, and then we have that number three position. And so, really, it's uh, there. There's two parts of the equation. One is winning um, in the show with the shoulder specialist, with the fellowship-trained shoulder surgeon that is doing uh, um, rotator uh, soft tissue repair and shoulder recon business. But it's also winning with the general orthopedic surgeon that's doing a hip. A knee and shoulders. And so there's really two different market segments and, and customer profiles that we'll go after. And uh, so, uh, you know, our plan is to uh, win in both of those segments uh, here in the U S.
0: And I understand uh, one of the the uh, benefits of the enhance is that it, it, uh, it will be more attractive or it's designed for more outpatient and ASC uh, settings. Are those, uh, are those, uh, becoming a, 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 a an important area where these uh, these procedures are done.
4: Yeah, it's um, you know we're seeing more and more uh, procedures move into that outpatient setting into the ambulatory surgery center, and we're really seeing this shift uh, with our our hip and knee procedures. And uh, the the enhanced system was actually designed with that shift of side of care in mind. And I don't know if you've you've been uh, to an orthopedic uh, procedure, or you've seen these, mm, you've, you've seen these loaner kits. I mean, you can have up to five, six, seven surgical trays required for for one particular surgery, and the the cost to serve that model is very expensive within orthopedics. It, hundreds of thousands of dollars uh, in, in capex will be invested into these surgical kits, and so what we've done with with enhanced by reducing the number of steps. It, which reduces the number of instruments required. We've uh, now uh, eliminated a large need for uh, CapEx or instrumentation. So now okay. we only have two sets required uh, to do a surgical procedure. So uh, what that means for an ambulatory surgery center is it lowers the cost of the surgery. Um, you know, saving the healthcare system money. Um, it streamlines the instrument which uh, allows for uh, easier access in and out of the uh, ambulatory surgery center and so and then with the convertibility um, you don't have to have multiple implants and multiple instrument sets in uh, your inventory because you can do do all of these different procedures with this one instrument kit so it was really designed with the ASC in mind and we're and we think that we can help drive the patients uh, from that uh, outpatient or inpatient setting to the outpatient setting uh, with this uh, streamlined instrument kit.
0: How are you looking going forward with with new product releases? Do you have a whole string of of I don't know if you're announcing anything else, or again at this point, if you have had announced anything else at AAOs, uh, or do you have plans for the next year, or the year after that? What is your pipeline look like of uh of new products for the uh the shoulder and, and i guess the larger the, the sports surgery space
4: yeah look so specifically for to, to enhance we have uh, a series of uh, introductions over the next uh, five years we just received um 510 10 k clearance on our enhanced uh short stem and stemless um, system, and that's what we will be reducing at the uh, AOS uh, next week. And then over the next five years, uh, we will be rolling out the reverse shoulder, which actually will come out a little bit later this year. We'll ha- or have our stemless reverse, which um, will uh, actually require a uh, clinical trial. So uh, the stemless reverse will start that clinical trial very soon, and we'll be releasing it upon FDA uh, approval and then we'll also have our fracture revision system. So we have a very nice cadence in the uh, within the enhanced system over the next five years. Uh, in addition to uh, continuing to uh, innovate with our uh, uh, global, uh, Global system, where we actually just uh, submitted our uh, 510K clearance for our, our uh, global ICON system, which we ran a European clinical trial, and we just put it in the mail last Friday to the FDA. So we're super excited about uh, the potential uh, clearance of that device uh, later this year. And, uh, and then we have some other things that we're working on in the digital space. So we've got a lot coming in, that, uh, in the shoulder recon space over the next uh, one to five years.
0: We're seeing, of course, uh, surgical robots moving in pretty much everywhere else, with already in knee and hip and spine and, and elsewhere. Is there an opportunity or is it for robotics in the shoulder? Uh, is that something we'll see?
4: Yeah, um, I, I think there is. And as, as you indicated, it's uh, they're widely used in spine and knee procedures um, today. And but when I think about um, – the robot is really more than a robot. We look at this, you know, space as, as the, as the digital space. And when, and when you think about the, the journey of the patient, um, and it's really what we envision to be a a digital journey. And we uh, have, we've actually formed a new uh, business unit uh, that we refer to as our, uh, our uh, VELUS digital surgery unit. Mm -hmm. And uh, And through VELUS, we'll be able to walk with the patient from the time he or she first visits the surgeon uh, through preoperative planning um, during the surgical procedure from a postoperative follow-up standpoint through physical therapy, all connected together with patient apps, um, surgical planning software, enabling technologies like like a robot, uh, and databases that will uh, help us develop out algorithms to, to better predict uh, the future outcomes and so you know i think it's you know more than robots it's robots it's augmented reality mixed reality it's artificial intelligence it's navigations it's patient apps mm-hmm. and it's really a truly exciting time for for orthopedics when it comes to uh, digital surgery very
0: cool and my final question i just want to ask uh, about the spine space what is uh, what's going on <laughs> at the pew in that in that area are you uh... In, in, introducing any new products? I don't know if you'll be at NAS in, in Boston, which is coming up. Uh, yeah, what does that look it, like?
4: You know, spine is uh, it's a passion of mine, and um, and I am super excited to be back uh, in the spine business. And uh, look, uh, we we are the number two spine company in the world, um, and uh, our uh, we've been innovating in, in this space uh, for for a long time, and we've got a lot of exciting things coming uh, with spine and, and what i would what i would tell you from a spine standpoint where we're really focused on on three areas in spine and it's um it's providing comprehensive solutions to the most complex spine pathologies that's our number one innovation objective number two is making spine surgery simple and less invasive and then and then number three it's uh provide uh being able to provide predictable, reproducible, and optimal, surgical outcomes, and that's really enabled by that digital surgery space that we just discussed. And what I would tell you is, is NASA's in our backyard this year, and we plan to show up in a big way and and own the meeting. So we're super excited about uh, the North American Spine Society being here in Boston, and uh, can't wait to uh, to put our best foot forward at that at that meeting.
0: That's great. Boston. Boston is my hometown, too. So uh, I'm glad you guys are going to gonna own the room. So, Russell, it was, uh, it was great to uh, talk to you. I'm, I'm grateful for the time and uh, thanks for, for being on the podcast.
4: Hey, thank you so much, Tom. Really enjoyed it.
0: All right, Chris Newmarket, let's roll into number three on the Markets Newsmakers.
4: Well,
2: you know, this was interesting. I mean, Vicarious Surgical, they did a, a SPAC deal. You know, this this was the week they went public. Um, they went public on Monday. Um, Monday happened to be one of the worst market days for the market in in months. Um, you know, with, you know, worries about, uh, it looks like, uh, you know, like there's questions of how much our banks are investing in Chinese real estate. So hopefully not too much. Um, you know, but meanwhile, um, you know, even as the markets went way down, you know, vicarious, they're, uh, our bot stock on the New York Stock Exchange still uh, ticked up a bit on their first day out there out of the gate on Monday. And then uh, the next day uh, it went up. Uh, you know, I was checking it during the middle of the day on uh, on Tuesday and it was up 19 uh, percent. So not 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 shabby at all. Like nice, nice increase. And yeah, yeah, it settled down a bit. But, uh, but yeah, nice, nice first week for Vicarious Surgical as a public company.
0: Yeah, and they're another Boston-based tech company. We've had a few around here, non medtech tech related. Uh, we had Toast, the uh, the restaurant uh, restaurant transaction company. I think their they, their IPO created their their turn their co-founders into uh, billionaires, I believe. So yeah, big news there, of course. And then uh, Ginkgo Bioworks, another local Boston company that went public. So Vicarious, not as large as those, but uh, continues to uh, to really bolster the the Massachusetts tech scene.
2: It's such an interesting space here. I mean, intuitive really has dominated it so much. Uh, you know and you know and, and you know over the years but you know now we've got these big players like medtronic and Jane j getting in there in fact our uh, our new mdo editor jim hammer had a quick story saying like uh medtronic was uh like about a week ago saying that they were waiting for the phone call to get european approval for hugo so we'll see uh by the time this runs maybe they got the phone call we'll see Let's See,
0: well, they'll certainly make next year next week's uh top five if if that happens so all right, yeah. we'll bring us to uh, to number two, Chris Newmarker.
2: Well, number two is the ongoing Theranos trial. So without ado, here is Danielle Kirsch to tell us. Danielle, what's the, you know, you've been, you know, following the trial, following all the news reports, writing some, you know, nice, uh, nice roundups of what's going on, uh, you know, almost on a daily basis. I mean, so what was the biggest thing that stuck out to you in recent days?
1: Um, well, since the last time I was here, there's been three more days of the trial. And I think the most popular story this week was the... The scientists from last week who testified about blood test inaccuracies prior to the uh, deal that the company made, and said that Holmes allegedly pressured her to validate blood tests, wow. speed out the rollout of the device. So that was that was one thing, and then you know there there was two other days where um, the uh, prosecution seemed to be. Shifting blame? The defense yeah. was shifting blame to Sonny one day.
2: Sonny Balwani, the, the former Theranos president, I guess. Is like, the defense seems to be, like, moving towards this argument that Balwani manipulated Holmes. and the. Mm-hmm doing and these then things
1: yeah Wednesday yesterday is when uh, former Deve- defense chief uh James Mattis wow. testified and uh he basically said that even though Elizabeth Holmes told investors that the Edison device was being deployed in Afghanistan uh Mattis said it wasn't so
2: was not wow so she you know it's it kind of it sounds a lot like the uh, the prosecution kind of just building this case like like the defense is trying to say that you know you know, she was influenced by Balwane, but you know, you keep on seeing more and more of this testimony saying that you know Elizabeth Holmes did this. Elizabeth Holmes did mm-hmm. this.
1: Yeah, every day it kind of changes in my mind. One day I'm like, oh, this kind of this kind of bodes well for Elizabeth Holmes, and the next day it's like, never mind.
0: I wonder has the defense produced any sort of documentation or email or text or any sort of anything that suggests some sort of coercion or manipulation between. Sonny Balwani and Elizabeth Holmes was happening?
1: Not yet. There hasn't been any texts that have come up, but um, I did get a little bit of access to some of their texts through some of the court mm-hmm. documents that have been filed. And um, I haven't personally seen any of those, but I guess we'll wait and see what the defense plans to bring up later on in the trial. We're still very early into it. It's supposed to go on until mid-December. So it'll be, yeah, yeah, yeah it'll be it'll be a while.
2: Yeah, and the, and the defense has said Holmes could testify, right?
1: Uh, yeah there they they said she could testify to the um, allegations that Sonny Balwani was emotionally manipulative Wow um, of her as as her former uh, romantic partner and former Theranos mm-hmm. president.
2: That, that's gonna be a, if she actually does testify that'll be a huge huge moment in the uh, the trial I suspect I mean when when those t- when those types of things happen I mean it's you know, really. They're hearing these arguments that she she was manipulated you, you'll have her up there on the stand you know and the, the jury will really get the you know decide for themselves like listen to her testify what uh what they think happened mm-hmm. so that'll be huge if it happened
0: all right Daniel, well i didn't realize it was going to go on for that long so maybe we'll have you on every week of the trial or maybe we'll give you a few a few weeks off <laughs> here and there if there's a slow week i uh, haven't really seen a slow yeah. week yet but uh well thanks for the uh update of course and uh Let's roll into number one, Chris Newmarker.
2: Well, and number one on the list, uh, this, uh, this this is another uh, story from Jim Hammerown on MDO.
0: Yeah, this is a scary one,
2: actually. Yeah, this is very scary. Uh, you know, we've you know we're increasingly seeing you know the medical device companies saying that they're you know seeing U.S. hospital procedures affected by by Delta. That that's unfortunately not a surprise. But um, you know, the thing that Jim dug into here you know with all these things we're we're hearing from the big companies is that uh you know they're also you know saying that we're not going to bounce they aren't expecting us to bounce out quickly out of this that you know there's they're uh they're hearing a lot from their health provider customers about uh you know hospital worker burnout um Mm -hmm. it's just um it's it's tough being in crowded hospitals where uh you're seeing a lot of people dying and, you know, it's not. It's going to take a while for, for the, these health providers to, it could take a while for them to bounce back um, Bounce back after this. So, you know, that's, a, that's kind of like a dynamic that, uh, that the medical device industry will have to, to work with for now.
0: And I think even suggesting that they have something to bounce back from suggests we're not going to have continued wave after wave. And I'm not sure where we are with that regard. We'll have to learn to live with it more, but uh, I think... If we're going to talk about infrastructure in this company. We need to talk in this country. We need to talk about healthcare infrastructure. We need to to have more facilities, and we need to reward these people and keep them in their jobs. or we're going to be in for a world of hurt. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the system's
2: been running out. You can't. We can't run at a crisis level with our healthcare system forever. We need to, you know, come up with some some solutions and yeah, and you know, put some investments in where we, where we need to, you know, and you know, make sure that. Uh, you know, we, we want to have a, a functioning healthcare system, you know, that can help all of us. And, you know, the, the, we, we shouldn't have the, um, you know, the, uh, the people who are, you know, working in it getting burned out.
0: Absolutely. All right. Well, good stuff by Jim. He's going, he's, uh, he's yeah. kicking butt. It's going great. Awesome. Well, one potential solution for this, burnout, or at least one of the reasons OsoVR came together was to create a uh, virtual reality training world for surgeons so they could they could become familiar with new procedures uh, without having to travel and without having to uh, meet in places. So I actually had the opportunity to uh, interview CEO, Dr. Justin Barad, uh, in the OsoVR uh, surgical suite. So That's we did, awesome. it, I think, my first virtual reality podcast interview. Nice. Uh, which'll we'll we play now we'll play we'll play about I interviewed him for 45 minutes I literally lost track of time it's like being in a casino where you're just having so much fun and you you're, you're done talking and you've been there for 45 minutes. I edited out the part where he was demonstrating the virtual reality tools and procedures just because despite my efforts to describe what was going on it just didn't really relate well to a podcast but we did break that off into a video segment which we'll uh, we'll send out through social media channels so if you want to watch' oh, that's me, exciting interview justin in a virtual reality setting we'll both be wearing our masks so it's a completely safe interactions so the whole get up is we'll be wearing our smocks and masks and gloves but uh, it's super cool yeah. and it is I, I, i'm sure most people or many people by now have done sort of vir- some sort of virtual reality connection it is uh it's extraordinary how it kind of tricks the mind into thinking you're in that room with that person really uh, wild. It felt very much like a like a personal connection and like we were talking in some on some uh conference expo floor or something so it was uh totally cool so i hope folks enjoy this interview with uh justin barad the uh founder and ceo of OsoVR. All right, before we begin the conversation with Justin Broad, I just want to let folks know that the audio was recorded over the Oculus VR headsets that uh, also provided. The sound in the room was excellent. I could hear Justin very clearly. The recording doesn't quite reflect that quality, at least for me. Justin's Justin's audio sounded fine, uh, which is why I'm really using this, because he's the one you want to hear from. I did the best I could with my audio, but uh, it was crystal clear in the room but uh, the recording isn't quite up to the standards we have in the podcast. So apologies if it sounds a little muffled, but uh, again, it does not reflect my experience in the Oso VR OR. All right, now let's hear from Justin Barad. So uh, welcome to the podcast, Justin Barad. Oh, thank you for having me. <laughs> this is a, an unusual setting for this. Uh, <laughs> I want to get into your, your life story. Of course, uh, we've covered it once before in a previous podcast. And I was actually just listening to one you did last year on, on MedTech Talk. So uh, it's a great story, and I want to I talk about it a bit. But I, I kind of want to understand: What do you see when you stand in this room? We're standing in the virtual, the also VR operating room. It reminds me a bit of the Bridge of the Enterprise. I doubt a lot yeah. of these places are, are as nice as this. You've got beautiful view of Miami, I believe it was. Yeah. And a large ter- turbo lift elevator door behind us. But <laughs> w- when you stand here, what do you uh, what do you see the potential of? What can this be, or what is it, and what can it be?
3: Yeah, well, I think you know. Right now, we are in a virtual operating room, and we're in different states, but it feels like we're here in the same room together. Much more so, even if we we're talking together through a Zoom meeting. So that's one thing. It does. It's just, it, it feels does. like it's I'm definitely- here with the person. It's definitely tingling a different part of my head. Like I feel
0: like I'm underdressed with my T-shirt, my letters to Cleo T-shirt, which...
3: (laughs) Uh, I mean, I I think you look great. But yeah, that's the first thing that strikes me is I'm here with a person hanging out. The second thing is that um, I'm in a space that feels very comfortable. It's it's spacious but not kind of endless, which kind of creates a sense of comfort. And it is both kind of, I would say... Cool, realistic, and comforting. In that, you know, it's it's kind of modern but slightly futuristic. Mm-hmm. It is filled with soft edges, kind of comfortable, warm lighting. So I, it's a space that I would be happy to spend a lot of time in. I don't, I don't feel uncomfortable. I don't need to leave. I don't feel claustrophobic. It's it's kind of fun and interesting, and I want to stay here for a while. And then it's also um, it just, it, if someone were watching a video of us talking to each other, they would they would want to jump in here. This looks kind of exciting and, and interesting and inspiring to them. So that's kind of how we try and create our spaces and our experiences is both, you know, you want it to be realistic and educational, but you also mm-hmm. want to draw people in and then have them want to stay in this world so that, you know, they get as much educational value as possible out of it.
0: That's great. and. It's a fairly large space. I'm guessing maybe 20 by 30 ish. I'm obviously virtually eyeballing it, but is this intended for a large? How many people do you quote unquote fit into this space?
3: Yeah, I mean it's it's pretty flexible. You can be in here by yourself. You can have a one on one like we're having, or you know you can have 12 or so people with different station set up like you see here and you can kind of rotate around, you can have side yeah. conversations and it really feels like a normal educational environment. Our, typically when we're training uh, in sort of like a, a lab or uh, kind of an OR-like setting, it's usually a bigger space. because. You need a lot more people to really run those things, so usually there are a lot of people standing around, multiple surgeons, and so we can really recreate that experience here in virtual reality and you can do it in your own home or office.
0: Absolutely, and we are currently taking a space up on the floor uh, and I'm staring at you and you're wearing blue surgical gloves, blue half smock. I see the mask, the goggles, and the hat, and that's how we kind of look like. Extras in the Invisible Man movie, or something like that, or maybe <laughs> body body doubles. Um, is this a familiar feeling when when this when you went into designing this space? Did you know what physicians might find comfortable and, and appealing? I mean, obviously, we don't need to be wearing surgical garb, but it is a familiar look for them, I
3: suppose. Yeah, I think you know. Once again, it's it's that balance between kind of the the kind of Realism of the experience, you know, it's like if you are in an operating room or even in a training lab, you're you're going to be wearing scrubs, so it's mm-hmm. you know important will be wearing scrubs. You should be wearing gloves, um, <laughs> uh, you know, for multiple reasons, um, and also you know you want it to feel kind of cool. I think the design is is really cutting edge and and, and comfortable. So, just like little things like you know having having the glasses there just you know you can you can see people's eyes but you avoid some of the issues of having simulated eyes in VR you run, you run into it's very easy for things to look creepy um, and which you really <laughs> want to get away from which is a, a unique problem with VR so you know we're able to, to do certain things to, to make it feel realistic but also kind of usable and, and fun and comfortable
0: very true. When I see I'll explain. Your name is about three inches above your head, virtually, of course, and when you talk, and I'm sure when I'm talking. I, I a wish bit this of existed microphone. in real life. <laughs> <It's> <laughs> Very bad. With helpful for me these days. So, is this. So, you started Off-So VR in 2016. Is this what you thought you'd have five years later? Has, has the vision played
3: out to where you thought it would be? I think, I mean, in my wildest dreams, I hoped it would probably not even be this far along as it is so mm-hmm. it's, it's exceeded my expectations the speed at which we have grown in terms of the size of the team the amount of procedures that we have the quality of the product um, it's it's completely blown my mind um, and you know who could have predicted you know recent events of the past couple of years but certainly that was a, a major factor in a big tailwind so you know, here we are today, and I'm, I'm really humbled to be alongside this ride as we really, um, you know, not necessarily change the world, but improve it. It's What we have in healthcare today is amazing. The healthcare professionals we have, the procedures we have, nothing short of miraculous, but in words of Itulagwande, better is possible, and we're starting to see that impact. And I think that's probably one of the things that's the most exciting for me as we get real clinical data showing that this makes the amazing procedures and professionals we have even better than they already mm-hmm. are by a significant amount.
0: Well, let's, let's talk about that a bit. And, and, and you're, there are some people who may, I think it, I think those days are done, but earlier on they probably rolled their eyes with the idea of this thing being necessary. What am I going to learn doing this? But uh, in listening to the interview you did recently, it's kind of left me, and you, and you kind of stipulated the problems that you're facing, left me just asking, well what, well, what else is there? There are no other solutions other than the current situation. Um, so what are the problems that also VR uh, seeks to solve?
3: Well, I think right now there are kind of like four key challenges that we have when it comes to the delivery of procedures and surgery in healthcare. The first is, there's simply too much to learn. So, if you think about it, accelerating science and technology is expanding the library of procedures that healthcare professionals are expected to know how to do on demand. I think of it like we're going from, you know, say, like French laundry to cheesecake factory. Right? It's just you can't do everything well. Uh, as much as I love cheesecake factory, um, and so. Uh, you know, I, I, I always tell, there are a lot of stories I'm sure every healthcare professionals have like, you know, one day I was called to operate on a gorilla or, you know, you know, sometimes you're at a computer like Googling what to do uh, because these are procedures maybe you've never done before, only do very rarely. And that's just because there are so many now with the introduction of these new technologies and new techniques. So we don't have a good way to learn things on demand or refresh older procedures. The second part of the problem is. Modern surgery and modern procedures, everything everyone's so excited about for good reason, like robotics, minimally invasive surgery, navigation, and other enabling technologies are actually much more complicated, and they're much harder to learn. And so the learning curve for a robotic surgery is often 10 times longer than its traditional counterpart, uh, or nearly so, Um, and we don't really have a new way to sort of accommodate this increased complexity. The, the third part of the problem is that we lack a way to assess technical ability in healthcare. And so, you know, I always tell a story. in My whole career, the only time I've been objectively assessed, I was asked to play the board game operation and, you know, remove the plastic pieces without buzzing, which I did, and I'm very proud of. But, you know, it, and once again, it's not that we don't want to assess these things. We just don't really have a way to. Um, so we're we're flying a little bit blind in a way, and then you know the fourth dynamic is of course the global pandemic. The the main way that we stay up to date and learn about new procedures is getting together in person at large scale conferences. Like just a couple of weeks ago, we were at you know the American Academy of Orthopedic Surge uh, Surgeons conference, and you know there were very few people there. The, the attendance was was quite minimal and it was canceled the year before. Um, mm-hmm. or in large scale courses where, you know, you get together with twenty hundred other surgeons and you're at cadaver stations doing these surgeries, but the attendance is also going down significantly for those as well. So, you know, how do we continue to maintain our skills and learn about new procedures and so those are really the key dynamics at play today um, that are really um, causing some major issues when it comes to the delivery of of newer and and what are often higher value procedures for patients
0: so what does also VR provide now I'm looking at a, at a, a tray table with a, a skull on it which I don't think is usually typically on a on a trade table
3: but also' a bonus for you
0: <laughs> and I'm picking it up right now. I mean, but there's a, there's a display of, of, of drivers and tools that are used. In, in, we're also looking at a patient's bed with someone who clearly needs a, a knee operation. You, you can describe all this better. But what does this training do? I mean, as you, you've noted in the past, this is obviously not a replacement for in-person training. Is this a, a warm-up? Is this just an introductory
3: level thing? What what is what is also VR's virtual reality? Uh, uh, system provide? That's a really good question. You know, so what we're doing right now is we are both in physically separate locations. All we have are Oculus Quest 2 headsets and two controllers in our hands, and now we are in a room together. We have a Mayo stand with all of the instrumentation to do a procedure. In this case, this is an orthopedic procedure. Uh, for a tibial shaft fracture. Um, So this is a titanium rod that you put in the leg to fix the fracture. We have a patient, a surgical table, fully functional C-arm, fluoroscopy, and also some anatomical models for additional education. Now, if you were to train in real life, just imagine what it would take to get all of this stuff together. You would need the facility to rent out. You need people to maintain the facility. You need mm-hmm. a mail stand. You need the instruments. We need each other and our time. You need a cadaver or a physical model. You need a surgical table. You need a CRM. We need to be wearing lead. and. Um, all of the additional stuff. So, you know, if you think about it, the logistical and cost lift of these training experiences are extremely high and these things are, are very hard to do. Now, once again, in some cases, we are actually replacing in-person training but I would say that's the exception, not the rule. The idea is that if a learning curve for a procedure, let's say, is 100 cases, so you have to do it 100 times, spend all of that time and money to do a procedure once when maybe you're going to be doing it a few months from now is not really a good investment of anyone's time or money because you're going to be so early on the learning curve, by a week you're going to forget 90% of what you learned. So the idea is that we're repositioning in-person training to make it much more effective and efficient for everyone's time and money. So the idea is that you can use Oso VR repeatedly over a period of time, maybe a couple of weeks, and you can train multiple times. You can test yourself, making sure that you're meeting proficiency requirements. You can meet with experts. For example, you could join me and I could give you some tips and tricks you wouldn't even get from the experience. Be like, oh, you know, hold this here. Like when you're using this, make sure you apply extra pressure. Do not hammer here. This will bend. Little little things like that, you know, just additional Mm -hmm. polish. I could see how you're doing, how you're doing ergonomically, your economy of motion, things like that. And then when you've done all of that and you were trained up, then you come to the in-person component. And what you're doing is you're changing kind of the, the dynamic. You're you're taking this very precious in-person training experience from an introductory experience to what I call last mile training or a, a refinement experience. It's a master class. Because, you know, when you're doing all that, you want to make sure that that's, this is just the cherry on top. So this is where you're getting all the little bits and feels and, and final, you're like, oh, yeah, this is how that works or, or this is that thing. And you're putting your skills to the test. You already know exactly what to do. So that's that's the, the key message. Everybody immediately goes, they're like, well, will this replace in-person training? I'm, I'm a surgeon first. And, you know, nothing will replace operating on an actual patient like not even a cadaver it has so many drawbacks compared to actual surgery like it doesn't have the pathology it feels different even cadavers mm-hmm. have a lot of challenges but the idea is that you know just doing a, a a procedure on a cadaver for example which is very expensive very time consuming one time when there's a learning curve of 100 cases and there's often no assessment at all and then a few months later just just going to operate on a patient is is not as effective as really preparing yourself as much as possible, assessing yourself, getting that hands-on experience for polish, and then you also have a refresh tool if you need it. And but the the one final thing is surgery is a team sport. Mm-hmm. Sometimes there'll be eight people in the room all doing different things and coordinating, especially with these newer technologies like robotics. Everyone has very important roles, much more so than surgery of the past where the surgeon could just like ask for things, right? Everyone needs to know what to do. but there's there's not enough money to train the whole surgical team because we have a lot of people rotating in and out. Maybe in a month, I'd work with 25 different surgical techs. So now we have a great tool where this is so easy to pick up and go. We can quickly in-service and get people up to speed as they rotate onto the team. So those are all the components of, of how this really elevates our existing surgical training system. And once again, that the people jump immediately to like, well, will this replace what I'm currently doing? And, and That is certainly not the intention, it is to make it much more effective in just repositioning what we're doing so that patients uh, see better results.
0: Excellent. Well, let's explore your background for a second and maybe we can do a quick couple of uh, steps in the procedure and just sort of let people hear what, what happens and, and mm-hmm. see on the video if they're watching the video. Yeah. But but. Take me back back to your background again. I know you're you're a coder and a gamer, sort of start. I don't think medicine was an early part of your plan. Uh, talk talk me through the first stage of your career and how did it lead to med school?
3: Yeah, so um, I started out in life, yeah, like you say, like very into video games, um, and I, I was really into how they were made, and I, I wanted to make them myself. So, you know taught myself how to code, been programming since middle school, the opportunity to work at Activision. I have a game credit with them uh, for a Quake Engine game, which is uh, kind of ancient at this point. Um, <laughs> and then, you know, I, what got me interested in healthcare is that, you know, like a lot of people I had a family member become ill. And I just, I had this idea one day, I'm like, oh, hey, like I'm really into software and technology. I'm like very passionate about it. Is there a way to use that to help people instead of just for entertainment? And so that led me to change my major from computer science, to biomedical engineering, which I studied at UC Berkeley, go Bears. Um, <laughs> and I, I really I had this strong kind of vision in my head that I wanted to invent healthcare technology. But as I was nearing the end of college, I really had no idea how to get started with invention and innovation. So it's kind of asking around, I asked one of my mentors for advice and he told me, if you want to invent something, you need to understand the problem you're trying to solve first. And he thought that a great way to understand medical problems was to be a doctor. So in, in retrospect, I may not Just have that. exactly yeah. known what I was signing up for, but yeah, I took his advice very literally. And, and did you
0: go into med school and did you have an idea that you would do this and then go back to inventing? Or did you, at some point, you're still practicing. At some point, did you sort of understand the joys of being a physician and you want that to be part of your life? Do you want that to be part of your life going forward?
3: Yeah, I think that is probably one of the most frequent questions I get in terms of people going through their own journeys in terms of how to be involved in technology and innovation. And I think it is a very stressful dilemma that all kind of innovative healthcare professionals and clinicians mm-hmm. have. So, you know, I was I went to med school UCLA. I stayed there to do my orthopedic surgery training. It was really there that I experienced this problem firsthand and also got involved in VR because of my gaming background I'm like wow this is an incredible solution for this problem and you know I think initially quite honestly I'm like okay I'll you know spin up a prototype and then some I'll find a CEO on Craigslist and he can kind of <laughs> take it and turn it into a big thing and you know what you realize is, is one that I cared about solving this problem more than almost anything else in my life. And I just, I never experienced anything like that before. I was just, I was so excited about it and wanted to work on it every single day to the point where even if I was faced with a choice, whether to kind of stay at this program I was doing at Stanford or to mm-hmm. go full time with OSO, knowing full well that 99.7% of startups fail. And so I asked myself, well, what if this failed? And I still would have been happy. Knowing that I had attempted to solve what I think is one of the most pressing challenges we have in healthcare today. So that's, that's kind of where my head was at. But mm-hmm. you know, I quickly realized that the, those, especially those early days where you just, you have to make things happen from nothing, that you have to have that kind of excitement and passion and obsession to keep things moving. And I, I, I don't think finding a CEO off of you know Craigslist or, or LinkedIn would have had that same kind of effect. And I knew that if I didn't go all in on this, it, it just never was going to see the light of day. And so I, I took the plunge, and it was definitely terrifying. <laughs> but, uh, but I definitely did it.
0: So in those early days, I mean, you've talked about the background of the designers, who obviously are very skilled and frankly artists in creating a scenario, a situation like this, a uh, room like this. At what point early on did you say, okay, if I'm going to do this, I need to do this completely, 100%, need to get the best of the best to work with me on this? And, and how do you sort of convince yourself that you can convince them to be part of something so new and so novel?
3: Well, I mean, I'm always amazed at the kinds of people that we're able to attract and, and get to join us on, on our mission and, and this journey. And I think, you know, part of it is that the story of what we're doing really resonates with people and, and you know people come to oso and you know they see what we're doing they see, see the team and how exciting it is but every single person that joins the company is, is like i experienced something in healthcare something happened to my family and and i w- i want to help and i want to use the skills i've developed over a lifetime to 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 solve this problem and so it's it really has happened quite organically and just sort of attracting the best of the best and it creates a kind of a snowball effect of attracting even more talented people. And, and they're all very mission driven and and wonderful too. It's the best team that I've ever worked on. No offense to prior teams, but it really is uh, just, just amazing. I will say that, you know, we had really a a major realization that early on I was, I I had a very sort of engineering and surgeon mindset to what Mm -hmm. we were doing. And uh, all I thought was, Hey, this, this just needs to work. We just need to be able to train surgeons, and honestly, it could—it doesn't need to look that good because the important thing is that we're training surgeons and making patients safe. But what I realized in some of the the kinds of team members that we were bringing on, like you know people from Industrial Light and Magic and you know Apple and Microsoft, like these leading studios, and you know what what they showed me is that you know. A lot of people they look at Oso like like you've been commenting here and they're like, this is this look amazing. This feels amazing. This is beautiful. Even if you're like not in medicine and you're looking at this, you're like, wow, wow, this is pretty impressive. Like it it's just you know it when you see it. And what I came to realize is that to get people to do something new, even if it's adding something. Right? We're not removing anything. We're just kind of adding mm-hmm. something to the process. That's, that's behavior change. And we know that we're very slow moving in medicine, even under unprecedented <laughs> conditions sometimes. And so, in order to get people to try something new, we need to inspire them. We need to get them excited and we need to kind of keep them engaged. And art has the power to do that. The the, the beauty and artistry of OsoVR. VR. Is partially what I credit our rapid expansion now in thirty countries, training over three thousand healthcare professionals a month, because people see this and they're like, "Wow, I I need to try this, or I want to learn more. Like, what it what is going on here? Like a lot like the questions you're asking. Like, I need to understand this. And if you actually look at medical history, this is how a lot of medical breakthroughs have actually come to be. Mm-hmm. You know, if We're all very big fans of Andreas Vesalius in like the 1700s, but long story short, there were a thousand years of the medical dark ages because there was just one particular form of medical thought that no one could seem to sort of turn over. They were branded a heretic. But this one guy, instead of telling everyone they were wrong, he actually commissioned a work of art. It was was a, a, a book of medical illustrations of anatomy and it was so beautiful and so exciting and so different that everybody bought it, everybody wanted it, it was highly desirable. What they didn't realize is it was completely revolutionary in terms of overturning the sort of paradigm of medical knowledge. Wow. And but no one no one was thinking about that. They were just like I want to buy what like was the 1700s version of an NFT. Um and then it completely changed the world. And that was all through the power of art. And so I really see this this kind of this emphasis on 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 the artists and the best of the best are bring the Osoviar and the beauty of the platform as kind of driving this Let's do something new, but let's also make it really exciting for everyone uh, to bring them on board.
0: Wow, that's great. That's a great parallel, and uh, that's a great point. I mean, I I don't want to give these headsets up. I'm not, not going to mail them back to you. I'm going to hold on to <laughs> <laughs> I want to keep. Invi- I want to visit this Wonderland. It's I know your address. So cool. <laughs> All right, I'll send them back. No, I'll use my son's my son's Oculus. I'll be fine. Okay, folks, quick timeout. So, this is where Justin demonstrated the uh, procedure. He worked with the patient, worked with the tools. Uh, it was very cool to watch. I did my best to uh, to describe what was going on, but upon listening to the audio, I just don't think it really does it justice. So, OsoVR is taking the audio. They actually record these sessions. They have a little camera that floats up in the air and records, uh, records everything that goes on. And uh, they turned it into a video and we will share that video on our social media channels. Now let's get back into this conversation with Justin Barad of Oso VR. So who are your primary customers? Who are you selling
3: to now? So, we mainly work with the medical device industry since all of these newer procedures involve some kind of device or enabling technology. And when we get trained, when I'm talking about, hey, I want to learn about how to do this newer surgery, new procedure, minimally invasive, I'm I'm not doing that through my hospital. I'm doing that through a medical device company. So, like, Johnson & Johnson, Smith & Nephew, Stryker. And so, those are our customers. We work with them. We bring their procedures into OsoVR. And then their customers utilize OsoVR as part of their educational journey. And you you mentioned that orthopedics is sort of a great place to start with this. What are your intentions
0: going forward? Does this sort of technology, does this platform allow for simulation in other
3: specialties of other surgeries, even soft tissue surgery? Yeah, that's a great question. We, we view OSO VR as a universal simulation platform. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we've already moved beyond orthopedics, although it's still a major focus for us. Um, but you know, we are in spine, which you know, some people consider that separate from orthopedics. Um, we're in the cardiac space doing things like electrophysiology, uh, structural heart. Um, we're in the interventional or endovascular space and doing things like uh, aortic valve, uh, um, I'm sorry, uh, abdominal aortic nerve repair uh, as an example. Um, We are in the gastroenterology, urology space. So we're really moving beyond just orthopedics. And the vision that I have is that there are, you know, you can look at different estimates, but maybe like. 20 to 30 million healthcare professionals who are doing procedures with patients. And that could be anything in my eyes from putting in an IV or a central line or doing complex robotic surgery. And just in the ease of how you and I are jumping into VR together, I want every single one of them to be able to jump into OSA VR to train and set themselves on whatever procedure they're doing at any time to potentially improve their performance from 230 to 300% um, and just make, making sure that No matter who the patient is, wherever the patient is, they're always receiving most optimal procedure with the most optimum proficiency from the team universally, and that's that's kind of the dream and the vision. Very cool. Well, one thing I've lost track of time. Wow, we've been talking for a long time. You get time dilation in VR. Yeah, we're putting a clock in the the next version. That's a good issue. Well, this has been very cool.
0: I mean, am I missing any uh, critical points? Uh, I, I'm, again, I've lost track of time. Normally, I try to keep this to a half hour, but uh,
3: clearly I a think place I, you want to spend you know, time. I just ask you, how do you feel in here? Like, uh, you know, I'm saying a lot about the feeling and how everything looks and how important that is, but I'm curious what your experience is. I feel very comfortable. I think the space, as we described, it's very
0: clean and open and, and almost space age, but more personally as an experience, this is definitely a more... Um, more stimulating than a Zoom call for sure, and it's it's definitely not as stimulating as an in-person. So it definitely is that in-between between teleconferencing and, and in-person, but I feel more engaged. I'm, I've i spent the entire time looking at you in the eyes even though you know you really can't see me. I've been smiling the whole time even though know, you can't see a face. <laughs> I haven't quite figured out what to do with my hands. I think I held them up for most of the hour, and my arms are going to get tired. I'm like, why, am I, why don't I put these down? But for some reason, I'm geared to here, but it definitely is. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a different reality than what we actually live in and it's a place where I, I could see being very conducive to training and learning and, and a place you want to return to. And I will give you the headsets back as you're talking about that.
3: <laughs> well, it's amazing, Tom. I, I really appreciate being on the show and uh, even more virtually than, than usual and
0: you know, <laughs>
3: thank you for all the work you do in our space and all the coverage. Uh, I get a lot of my information and insight from you and uh, just for your long-term support and belief in the company. Awesome. Well, thanks. Thanks for joining us on the podcast and for opening your, your operating rooms with us. You're welcome. Anytime.
0: All right. Well, that is a wrap. Now is the time for us to do what, Chris Newmarker?
2: Tell people how to reach us. I mean, you can find me on LinkedIn, Twitter, uh, Newmarker, just like a Newmarker.
0: And Danielle Kirsch, where can folks find you and, and follow your uh, Theranos coverage? I shared it today on, on LinkedIn, Thursday on LinkedIn. You're doing some really great stuff. They should really uh, keep tabs on what you're doing.
1: Yeah, I'm posting uh, both on LinkedIn and Twitter. On Twitter, I'm Danielle underscore Kirsch, K-I-R-S-H. And I have the same name on LinkedIn.
0: Fantastic. Yeah, people should definitely connect with you on LinkedIn and follow you on Twitter. And uh, I can be found on Twitter at MedTechTom. I'm on LinkedIn, Tom, S-A-L-E-M-I. When you do connect with us, that'll enable you to share or, or tag us when uh, you're sharing this podcast, which we'd love you to do. Please share this episode on those social media channels. Please do tell your friends. Please do subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss any future episodes. The podcast we put out last week, by the time I opened up my laptop on uh, Monday morning, we had over a thousand plays. So there are a lot of people subscribing and, and getting it before we even posted on on our websites awesome. and on social media so uh yeah you should. should you should get the news yeah. first like follow subscribe there it is there it is we got we need to get working on that merch so we're so it's ready for our uh Dis- device talks boston uh, i'm ready yeah. all right we'll, we'll we'll talk tomorrow should i should i wear a dress shirt at
2: device talks or am i going to get my polo shirt with the device Talks logo or you know or um i'm not wearing a costume i'm, I'm thinking black turtlenecks
0: all of us what do you think
2: Black, I like yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, you know that always
0: works. That always represents yeah, well.
2: You see somebody wearing a black turtleneck, <laughs> you're like that person knows things. That person. <laughs> All right. Whatever they're saying is true. Cool. They're wearing a black,
0: yeah black, black turtlenecks like with with like follow subscribe in the back. I think that's where we'll go. Love. All it. right. Cool. Love it. I think we got it. It's good. <laughs> Tune in next week, folks. We'll have another great episode of the Device Talks, a weekly podcast, waiting for you.
4: Enjoy the fall.